Om Namo Bhagavate Sri Arunachala Ramanaya. Um, namaskaram. Um, today I'm going to be talking about verse 4 of Uludunapadu. Um, it is from this verse that Bhagavan gets down to really the, to the heart of the subject he's talking about. Um, that is the Though Uludunapadu, the title Uludunapadu means 40 on what is or what exists. Uludu means what exists. Actually, the main topic um, that Bhagavan is dealing with in many of the verses, probably the majority of the verses, is ego. The reason being that what is is our real nature. It always exists. But Obstacle to knowing ourselves as we actually are is only our rising as ego. So it is about the rising of ego, but um, and how to put an end to the rising of ego is the main topic in Uludunapadu. Um, Bhagavan begins from this verse onwards talking about the world, but he makes very clear what is the connection between the world and ourself. Um, but the reason he talks about the world and and, and uh, uh, explains why the world is unreal is that perception of the world is the very nature of ego. When we rise as ego, we the two defining characteristics of ego is that as ego, we are always aware of ourselves as I am this body, and we are consequently aware of things other than ourselves. All the things other than ourselves are what are collectively called world. Um, so, uh, world can be taken to mean the, the, the physical world, but we uh, seem to perceive through the five senses. It can also be taken to include the internal world, the world of our thoughts, feelings, perceptions, memories, and so on. Actually, it's all just one world. Even the external world is a part of our internal world, because the external world appears only in the view of ego. So just like the world we perceive in a dream, it exists or seems to exist only in our mind. Um, so, as I say, this is the first verse where Bhagavan really begins to talk about the nature of ego. In the previous two verses, well, in the first, very first verse, he begins with, because we see the world. Why do we see the world? Who is it who sees the world? The one who sees the world is ego. So the, um, the, uh, when he says, because we see the world, that we, uh, he, he begins with, the, in Tamil, it begins with the word we. Nam ulahum kandalal. Nam means we. That we is referring to ego, because it's only ego who sees the world. So indirectly, in verse 1, Bhagavan is... is is um, beginning to refer to ego. In verse 2, he says that, um, that all arguments about, um, about whether there's one reality or three realities, or whether, whether the one reality is always uh, uh, one reality, or whether the three are it's sometimes three and sometimes one, what, whatever. There's so many different philosophical arguments about the nature of the world, soul, and God, um, and the relationship between them. Um, Bhagavan says all these 
discussions, all these uh, debates, all these uh, disputes about the nature of the world are possible only so long as ego exists. And um, he says that um, being in our natural state in which ego is destroyed is best. And then in the third verse, he also refers indirectly to ego by saying the, the state in which I has um, has died by our investigating ourselves is agreeable to all. Um, so Bhagavan is constantly turning our attention away from things other than ourselves back towards ourselves. So what he says in this um, in this fourth verse is. Um, he he shows what is the connection between the appearance of the world and and our rising as ego and taking a form to be ourself. What he says in this verse is, Uruvum tan ayin uluhu paramatram. That means if oneself is a form, the world and God will be likewise. That is, if we mistake ourselves to be the form of this body, we will see only forms. So there will seem to be a world consisting of so many forms. And even whatever our conception of God may be, even if we have an idea that God is formless, we cannot know God as formless so long as we know ourselves as a form. Even the very idea that God is formless is a mental form. That every idea is a mental form. So we, we, we cannot know God as formless so long as we know our, as we take ourselves to be a form. So when we, when we are aware of ourselves as a form, we will be aware of so many other forms that constitute the world and God. Um, <clears throat> and then in the next sentence, he says, Uruvum tan andrel, if oneself is not a form, Uvatrin uruvate kan urudul yavan evan. That means who can see their forms and how. That is the, the, what sees the world of of forms and what sees God in form is only ego, which is the, the that false awareness that takes itself to be the form of a body. Um, Regarding what is the form Bhagavan refers to in the first sentence when he says, if oneself is a form, he um, it, it should be clear if we understand his teaching, but he he uh, confirms it in the Kali Vemba version, that is the extended version of Uludhanapadu, where he added some extra words between each verse. The, the words the, 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 between the previous verse and this verse, he added the words, une tun. Which means um, une uh, means um, of flesh and tunum means composed of. So if oneself is a form which is composed of flesh, in other words, he's indicating that the form he's referring to is the form of a body. Um, but as he clarifies in the next verse, the, what he means by the term body is not just the physical form, not just the, the form of flesh, whenever we experience ourselves as a body, we we don't experience ourselves as just the body. The body always seems to be alive. So there's the physical form of the body plus life. And also the body seems to be awake. When the body is sleeping, we are not aware of it. So the, the body always seems to be awake. And when it's awake, mind, 
intellect and will are also function, seem to be functioning within it. So these five are called the five sheaves. And this is what Bhagavan means by the term body. Um, so in the next verse, he says, Udal Pancha Koza Uru, the body is a form composed of five sheaves. So when he talks about body, he's not referring just to the physical body, but everything that goes along with the physical body. Whenever we experience ourselves as a physical body, we also experience ourselves as the life animating the body, the mind, intellect, and will that seem to be functioning within that body. Um, so when we mistake ourselves to be this form, which is not just a physical form, that is the, the physical form of the body is there, but there's also different levels of, of subtlety. The, 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 the prana, the life, is relatively more subtle than the, um, than the body, and more subtle than the life. The life here means all the physiological processes that are animating the body. Subtler than the life is the mind. Subtler than the mind is the intellect. Subtler than the intellect is the will. So they're different levels. So um, when he talks about form, he's not just talking about physical forms. He's also talking about mental forms. Of course, all physical forms are just perceptions, which are mental forms, as he as he uh, says in verse um, six, the, the, not the next verse, but the verse after that. But um, when, when he's talking about forms, he's talking about um, forms that seem to be gross and forms that seem to be subtle, all the forms. Of, what is a form? A form is anything that has any distinguishing characteristics, anything whereby you can distinguish it from any other thing. So every... Uh, the objects of the world are forms. The events, the things happening in the world are forms. Um, the, all the um, all mental phenomena, mental impressions are forms. So he, the, the term form here is used in a very, very broad sense. So when we take ourselves to be this form consisting of five sheaths, namely the body, we see the world and God as forms. Obviously, the world seems to be um, material forms, whereas God seems to be some more subtle form. Um, but we, we, we cannot know the world or God as formless so long as we know ourselves as a form. But if we don't know ourselves as a form, Uruvam Tanandre, if oneself is not a form, Uvatrin Uruvate Kan Urudal Yavan Evan. Who can see their forms and how? That is, how is it possible to see a, a form of, forms of the world or a form of God if we don't take ourselves to be a form? Then in the next sentence, he um, in the next sentence is Kanalal Kakshiondo. This sentence has a very deep meaning, but Bhagwan has used very simple words. So it can be easy if one takes the the surface meaning of it, it doesn't actually have a very deep meaning. We can take, kan means I. I means in the sense of E-Y-E, the, the organ of sight. Um, but here it's used as a metaphor for awareness. Alal means, um, means except or besides. It can also mean without. Um, kakshi means what is seen. And undo means uh, is there. Or is is it? So the, the the very superficial meaning of this world is besides the eye, 
or without the eye, is there any, is, does what exists, uh, sorry, does what is seen exist? Is there anything that is seen? That's a very superficial meaning, but actually Bhagavan intends this to be understood in a much deeper sense. What he means by alal is um, not just accept, but uh, accept as, or oh, otherwise than. In, that is in the first sentence he says, um, if oneself is a form, the world and God like will be likewise. The word he used for likewise is art true. So here he's using this Allah as a corresponding word. So the um uh, can the what is seen be otherwise than the eye? What he means by otherwise is of, of another nature. Can it be of a different nature? So if the eye that is seeing is seeing itself as a form, it will see only forms. But if the eye sees itself as formless, it will not see any form. That is the nature of whatever is seen, is the, it's, it's the same nature as the eye that sees it, as the awareness that it sees it. That is the meaning of this. So this is actually a very deep philosophical um, uh, principle Bhagavan is uh, indicating here. He doesn't ex express it explicitly. He asks it in the form of a rhetorical question. But when he, he asks, can, um, can what is seen be otherwise than the eye? It's in, the, the obvious answer is no, it cannot be. That is the implied meaning. The, the, it's a rhetorical question. It implies, but what is, what is seen cannot be otherwise than the eye. It cannot be of a different nature to the eye. So if the eye Namely, that means the awareness is an awareness that is takes itself to be a form. In other words, if it is ego, ego is a an a form of awareness, but an awareness that always mistakes itself to be a form. Then it will see only forms. So when we rise as ego, we are aware of ourselves as I am this body. Consequently, we are aware of the world and God as forms. That is the implication here. But if we were, if we didn't rise as ego, if we didn't take ourselves to be a body, then who is to see their forms and how? In other words, there's no. If the I, the awareness that sees is formless, it can see only formlessness. Um, so, pure awareness has no form, so it doesn't see any forms. So the world seems to exist only in the view of ego. And then he goes on in the next sentence to say, um, kan adutan antamilakan. Kan, as I say, means I in the sense of uh, organ of sight, E-Y-E. -E. Um, so uh, 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 what that means is um, uh, the I is oneself. Kan adutan antamilakan, the infinite I. Antam means um, end or limit. Antamila means uh, endless or limitless. So in this context, it implies infinite, that which has no no limits. All forms have limits. Every every form has certain defining characteristics that distinguish it from each other form. Uh, so all forms are finite, but that which is infinite is formless. 
um so when he says that uh, it, uh, the, the, when he says the i is oneself the infinite i what he implies here is the real i uh, is oneself the real awareness is only ourself the infinite awareness is the implication here ourself here uh, tan is referring to ourself as we actually are our real nature so our real nature is the is the real i and it is the infinite i it's the real awareness and it's the infinite awareness therefore the formless awareness so the implication here is that what we actually are is infinite and therefore formless awareness so in the view of ourselves as we actually are there can be no forms because the, what is seen cannot be otherwise than the seer since we as uh, so the, the I he's referring to here is pure awareness. In the view of pure awareness, there is nothing other than itself. That is the awareness that knows anything other than itself is ego. That is the impure awareness, the adjunct mixed awareness. Whereas pure awareness, awareness devoid of adjuncts, is not aware of anything other than itself. Because it is not a form, it doesn't see any form. So it cannot... Uh, when we see anything other than ourselves, whatever we see as other than ourselves is a form. But in the in the state of infinitude, beyond in the state of limitlessness, there are no forms. So pure awareness never sees any forms. So what Bhagavan says in this verse, on the surface, it's very simple, but actually it has. It, it is a very, very, very profound principle Bhagavan is teaching us in this verse. And if we understand this, um, this what he implies by uh, this verse, many other aspects of Bhagavan's teachings will become clear. For example, he says, but we cannot know ourselves so long as we are seeing the world. That is, um, in, in the third paragraph of Nana, he says, um, uh, sorry. Um, Saba arivikum, Saba torikum, Karana mahia manam adanginal jagadrishti ningam. That means if the world, which is the cause for all awareness, here, what he means by awareness is awareness of things other than ourselves, and for all activity, ceases or subsides. Jagat drishti, perception of the world will depart. And then he goes on in the next sentence to say, "Karpita sarpanyanam ponal oriya adishtana rajunyanam undahadadu pol pola." That is just as um, the um, the um, the knowledge of the rope, which is the adhistana, which is the base, the the, the ground of a foundation, um, uh, um, uh, that that knowledge cannot arise until the imaginary knowledge or the fabricated knowledge. Of uh, uh, of a knowledge of the fabricated snake, the imaginary snake, uh, unless that goes. That is, so long as we see the rope as a snake, we cannot see it as a rope. 
When we see it as a rope, we no longer can see it as a snake. We can't see it as a snake and as a rope at the same time. But rope is not changed whether we see it as a rope or see it as a snake. But our perception of it is changed. If we see it as a, a snake, we are not seeing it as a rope. If we see it as a rope, we are not seeing it as a snake. So just like that, just like the, the knowledge of the, of, the, of the rope cannot arise, we cannot know the rope as it is until we cease knowing it as a snake. So long as we know it as a snake, we are not knowing it as it is. Likewise, Karpitamana Jagadrishti Ningaloriya Ajishtana Surupa Dashanam Unda Hadadu. That means um, uh, unless perception of the world, which is Karpita, that means which is a fabrication or an imagination, a mental creation, unless that perception of the world departs, uh, darshana, that means seeing or sight, or, or, or it implies awareness of swarupa, our, one's own real nature, which is the adhisthana, will not arise. So what Bhagavan applies here is but we cannot know ourselves as we actually are so long as we know the world. And when we know ourselves as we actually are, we cannot know the world. The reason for that is what is clarified by him in this um fourth verse of Uludunaptu. Uh, that is, perception of the world means perception of, we, we see the world as a collection of, of forms. Those forms appear only so long as we take ourselves to be a form. Uh, uh, in other words, we take, so long as we take ourselves to be a body. So since we Whenever we rise as ego, we always take ourselves to be the form of a body. We always see forms. So uh, our perception of forms is dependent on our perception of ourself as um, our, our false awareness of ourself as this body. That false awareness of ourself as this body is ego. Um, so, so long as ego is there, we can see only the world. We cannot see ourselves as we actually are. When we see ourselves as we actually are, since ego is a false awareness of ourself, awareness of ourself as I am this body, which is not what we actually are, we, so long as we rise as ego, we cannot be aware of ourselves as we actually are. We cannot be aware of ourselves as we actually are without thereby eradicating ego. So how can we eradicate ego? Only by looking within and knowing ourselves as we actually are. When we know ourselves as we actually are, we will know we are formless. So we cannot see any forms. So uh, that is why Bhagavan says in that third paragraph of Nana, but the Swarupa Darshanam will not arise until Jagadrishti is removed. Swarupa Darshanam means uh, literally means seeing one's own real nature. That implies being aware of ourselves as we actually are. We cannot be aware of ourselves as we actually are so long as we are seeing the world. When we see ourselves as we actually are, we will no longer see the world because the world appears only in the view of ego. So as I say, this what Bhagavan teaches in this verse, this is key to understanding so many of his teachings, particularly other teachings of Uludunapadu. And if we, if we 
Understand the implication of this verse when he says if oneself is a form, that implies if we rise as ego, because whenever we rise as ego, we always take ourselves as a form. When we don't rise ourselves as when we don't rise as ego, we don't take ourselves as a form. So if oneself is a form means if oneself has risen as ego. If we if we have risen as ego, then the world and God will see appear to be forms. Uh, if we cease rising as ego, as for example in sleep, who can see their forms and how? There's no one to see their forms. They're the forms of the world and the forms of God are all exist only in the view of ego. When we know ourselves as we actually are, ego will thereby be dissolved, so we will not be aware of any other forms. We'll be aware, we will be pure awareness, we will be the antimilakan, the infinite I, uh, the infinite awareness, that means, and that infinite awareness cannot see anything except itself, because everything, other, it, well, there is nothing other than itself, because it's infinite, and even if there was something other than itself, that is all finite, and that which is infinite cannot see that which is finite. That which is finite cannot see that which is infinite. So it, this is this this is a extremely deep metaphysical principle Bhagavan is teaching us in this verse. In fact, not only metaphysical, it's also um, epistemological or epistemic because our knowledge of names and forms arise because we take ourselves to be the name and form of this body. And if we don't take ourselves to be the name and form of this body, there will be no knowledge of any other forms. So it has metaphysical implications and uh, epistemological implications. So this is an extremely deep verse. But what is most important, Bhagavan doesn't teach us philosophy just for the sake of philosophy. Whatever philosophy Bhagavan teaches us, whatever metaphysics or epistemology he teaches us, it is, it is for... It, it all has practical implications. So when we when we read verses like this, we shouldn't just um, understand the surface meaning. We should understand what is the implication. The implication is: so long as we are aware of ourselves as a form, we will always be seeing the world and God as form. So we cannot see if we see God as a form. We see we're seeing him as something other than ourselves. So we cannot know God as ourselves so long as we rise as ego. And um, so long as we rise as ego, we always take ourselves to be the form of a body. Consequently, we see a world. So so long as we are seeing anything other than ourselves, we are nourishing and sustaining this ego, as he says more explicitly later in verse 25, uh, or he indicates more explicitly in verse 25. So, so long... So long as we're attending to anything other than ourselves, we cannot know ourselves as we actually are. So in order to know ourselves as we actually are, we need to cease attending to other things. However, as he makes clear in so many other places, in Uludunapdu and elsewhere, merely withdrawing our attention from other things, merely ceasing to see other things, merely ceasing to see forms, is not sufficient. Because when we cease to see forms, we subside in layer, as happens every night when we fall asleep, because we are too tired to continue projecting this world of names and forms. We 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 subside back into our source uh, to get some rest. Since we subside, 
then names and forms disappear because they exist only in the view of ourselves. But the problem is with sleep. The only problem with sleep is we come out of it again because it is manolea. It is a temporary dissolution of mind. When the mind is dissolved in manolea, whether in sleep or kevala nivikalpa samadhi or coma or whatever it may be, that which is in layer will rise again, as Bhagavan says in verse 13 of Rupadesh India. Only if its form dies, in other words, only if it attains nasa, if it's annihilated, eradicated, will it not will it never rise again? So um merely, merely not seeing other things is not sufficient. We need to not only how we need to stop seeing other things, only by seeing ourselves. Withdrawing our attention from other things will lead to a subsidence in layer. In order to achieve NASA, we need to not only withdraw our attention from other things, we need to focus our attention on ourselves. Because why? Because ego is a false awareness of ourself. It can be destroyed only by correct awareness of ourselves. So we ourselves need to see ourselves as the pure awareness that we actually are. Then only will ego be destroyed. So in layer, the mind, the ego cannot be destroyed. It's just waiting in abeyance, and it will rise again. So um, there is, when we read these verses of Ulyanapta, we have to firstly we have to understand the deep implications of each verse, but we also need to. Uh, not take any verse in isolation. We need to understand each verse in the light of all of his other teachings, all of his other verses, because um, what he says in one place, the, the, the implication and the significance of what he says in one place is clarified in some other place. So Bhagavan's teachings, uh, that is, when I say Bhagavan's teachings, I'm now talking about his own original writings. In other words, Arunachas Dutipanchikam, Upadesh Undia, Uludu Napadu, Ammavidde, Apalapatu, Ekamapanchikam, these core works, um, Bhagavan's own original writings, they are a coherent whole. If we understand all these verses correctly and understand each verse in the light of all the other verses, Oh, oh, and we can add to that original writings of Bhagavan Nanar, of course. That's also, though that's in prose, it's a very important one. All these, each, each text casts light on each other text. So we need to have, we, we, we shouldn't take Bhagavan's teachings in isolation. In order to understand them correctly, we need to have a coherent understanding. That is, we need to, uh, make all the connections between what he says in Aksharamlai, what he says in Uludunabdu, what he says in uh, Nana. In all these places, though he's talking from a different perspective, in Aksharamlai, for example, he's talking, It's on the surface, it seems to be a devotional hymn, a hymn praised to some, to some god out there, god in the form, form of a hill. But actually, Aksharamla has a very, very deep meaning, and we can understand the, the depth of meaning in Aksharamla only if we read it in the light of all of Bhagavan's other teachings, Uludunapadu, Upadeshundia, Nana, and so on. So we, we need to, um, as I say, we need to have a coherent understanding, comprehensive, 
we need to understand all his original writings and we need to have a coherent understanding. We need to make the connection between what he says in Aksharamalai, what he says in Nolidunapuru, what he says in Nana, what he says in Upadeshundia. There are so many connecting threads. We need to recognize those threads because then we get, when Bhagavan, what Bhagavan has revealed through his teachings is implying so much more than the surface meaning of the words. So a lot of the implications can be inferred only by connecting different verses together, seeing the connection between what he says here and what he says there. So, um, as I say, this particular verse, this is a very, very key verse that Bhagavan is expressing in this verse, a very in a very uh, crucial fundamental principle. If we understand this principle, it will enable us to understand so many other verses uh, with far greater depth and clarity than we would if we didn't understand the principle expressed in this verse. So um, I think I've said enough about this verse for the time being, but if anyone has any questions they'd like to ask about this, Michael. So you mentioned during your discussion, um, metaphysical and epistemological. Can you differentiate those two terms, please? Okay. Met metaphysics is um, um, uh, it, it is metaphysics well ontol ontology um, ontology means the, the philosophy of what exists. Whereas epistemology is the philosophy of what, of how we know, um, how we know things, how how we know what exists. So metaphysics is primarily ontology. What 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 is that is uludu napudu. Uludu means what exists. So what is it that exists? So many things seem to exist. This world seems to exist. Um, uh, over um, our mind seems to exist, ego seems to exist, um, and we can infer that there's also some God who has created this. I mean, we can have so many ideas about things, but uh, uh, metaphysics is distinguished from physics. Physics is concerned with the, the, the physical objects of the universe, whereas metaphysics is concerned with the underlying reality. Yes, that's the best way of describing um, metaphysics. What metaphysics ultimately is about is distinguishing appearance from reality. So many things seem to exist. In other words, they, have, they appear to exist, but do they actually exist? That is what uh, metaphysics is all about. Um, so, um, most that is um most religious views of the world and most scientific views of the world are based upon a metaphysical assumption the assumption that the world exists independent of our perception of it but that is a metaphysical assumption because how can we know anything exists independent of our knowledge of it. Why did the world seem to exist? Because we see it, because we know it. That's why Bhagavan begins Uludunapu with the words, because we see the world. Because according to Bhagavan, the world doesn't actually exist. 
it seems to exist. To whom? It, it, that, that this is a fundamental principle of Advaita. Advaita, one of the core principles of Advaita is what is called Vivatavada. Vivata means an appearance, an illusory appearance, unreal appearance. So according to Advaita, this world is just an unreal appearance. But what should, when we are told this is an appearance, what we, we, we then have to think deeply about it. If it's an appearance, to whom does it appear? This is what this is where Bhagavan's teachings uh, clarify the, the meaning of Advaita is made so much more clear by Bhagavan's teaching because Bhagavan puts to us the question, to whom did this world appear? In whose view does it seem to exist? It's only in the view of ego. But in sleep, when we don't rise as ego, we're not aware of any world. We're aware of a world only in waking and dream. And we're aware of that world because we've risen as ego, taken a body to be ourselves. So the um, distinguishing the, the appearance from the reality and recognizing what actually exists, in other words, distinguishing what actually exists from what merely seems to exist, this is what metaphysics is all about. Um, but of course, there are many different with philosophy. There are always any any um, any aspect of philosophy. There will always be many different views. Um, but um, the, the metaphysics is sometimes called first philosophy. It's the most fundamental philosophy. The philosophy of what is real, what actually exists. So that is metaphysics or ontology. Whereas uh, epistemology is how do we know that it exists? The, the world seems to exist, but how do we know it exists? Because it appears in our view. So um, when we go deep into uh, metaphysics or epistemology, we 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 cannot really separate them because metaphysics is about sat, epistemology is about chit. Metaphysics is about existence. Epistemology is about awareness, as as uh, revealed in uh, Vedanta, in, in Advaita, and as emphasized by Bhagavan, existence and awareness are one and the same thing. The world seems to exist because we're aware of it, because we see it. it, it does it actually exist? Well, it doesn't appear when we when we are not aware of it. So why should we suppose that it has any existence independent of our knowledge of it? Thank, thank you, Michael. Mm -hmm. So that sort of clearly clarifies. You know, we yeah. finally said both are pretty much two sides of the same coin. Well, from from an Advaitic perspective, but yeah. in in philosophy, they treat them as two different uh, two different areas of philosophy. Obviously, they they see the connections between them, but they treat them as separate areas of philosophy. In Uludunapadu, there are some verses we can say are particularly epistemological verses, such as um, nine, ten, eleven, twelve, thirteen, because Bhagavan is talking about knowledge, but it, the, that is the, that there the emphasis is on knowledge. So the emphasis is epistemological, but it's it you can never separate it from the um, 
from the metaphysics, from what actually exists. You can't separate. Bhagavan has explained it beautifully in verse 23 of um, Upadesha Undia. Because of the non-existence of any other awareness to know what exists, what exists is awareness. That is a very, very uh, nice argument Bhagavan gives there. That is, argument here means uh, he gives a very nice reason for us to accept that ultimately existence and awareness are one. Because if awareness was something other than what exists, it would be a non-existent awareness. How can a non-existent awareness know anything? So, so Bhagavan says, because of the non-existence of any other awareness, that means it, that implies any awareness other than what exists, to know what exists, what exists is awareness. We can also take the argument, we can also, um, Bhagavan hasn't said this explicitly, but just like um, awareness cannot be other than what exists, what exists cannot be other than awareness, because if if aware if what exists was something other than awareness, it would not be aware of its own existence. So what would be aware of the ex its existence would be some awareness other than itself. So it its seeming existence would depend upon the uh, the existence of whatever is aware of it. So it it wouldn't be a real existence. So what actually exists must be awareness because. We are aware. We we are aware of our own existence. That's why Bhagavan concludes verse twenty three of Upadesha India by saying, he, he 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 in the first sentence he says because of the non existence of any other awareness to know what exists, what exists is awareness. Then he concludes by saying, unave na mai ullam. Um, awareness alone exists as we. In other words, we ourselves are that awareness. That awareness, which is itself what actually exists. So, in other words, we are such it. We are what actually exists and what is actually aware. So, in 23, it connects the metaphysics and the epistemology principle. Yes, yes. Thank you, Michael. So, um, there is an anonymous question here. Um, so, anything short of Manonasa? Any so-called spiritual experience is still in the domain of Maya. From what you say, Manonasa is complete and final in itself and is the one single criterion for freedom. Is this so? Absolutely. Bhagavan defines uh, liberation. That is, in, in all in systems of Indian philosophy, except the, the, the materialists, in all ancient systems of Indian philosophy, whether it is what is nowadays called Hinduism, in other words, the Astika philosophies, or uh, Buddhism or Jainism, all of them, the, the, the aim of all Indian systems of philosophy, apart from materialism, is moksha, liberation. Liberation from what? But one thing they all agree about, liberation from samsara. That is, there's the samsara is the... Um, is embodied existence, the, the cycle of births and deaths. Uh, um, this is the bondage we are caught up in. We want liberation from bondage to samsara. 
so all agree that the ultimate aim is to get uh, uh, liberation from samsara, whether you're a Buddhist or a Jain or a, um, whether you're uh, following the Nyaya philosophy or the Vaisheshika philosophy or Sankhya or Yoga or uh, Mimamsa or Uttramimamsa, that's Vedanta, all these different uh, philosophies and all the sub-philosophies within, within them all aim for moksha. But what is moksha? There are widely different ideas. For example, some Vedantins, I mean, leave aside all the others. Let's just talk about Vedantins. Even among Vedantins, there are so many different views. According to the Dvaitins, we are separate from God. We are always separate from God. So the, the liberation from samsara is going to God's world, going to Vaikuntha or Goloka, um, or wherever, or if you're a Shaivite, going to um, to um, to uh, Kailasha, the um, abode of Shiva, going to such a, a, a divine world that is liberation. Uh, so, in that, in such a state of liberation, in, in their idea of liberation, you retain your individuality. So, you still have a form. You're still something separate from God. Um, there are other uh, um, schools of philosophy that think that for liberation, when, once you're liberated, you can have a form if you want, and you can be formless if you want. So it's liberation with or without form. You, you're, because you're free, you're free to take a form or you're free to be formless. Um, and and uh, uh, the other um, option is that liberation is formless. There's no individuality. You have no separate existence. So Bhagavan, in the final verse of Uludhanapadu, he says, um, if it is said that the liberation that can be attained is of three kinds, with form, without form, or with or without form, I will say, destruction of the ego form that distinguishes liberation with form, without form, or with or without form, is alone liberation. So for Bhagavan, liberation is only eradication of ego. Why? Because ego itself is a vidya. Ego itself is a jnana. It is the, it is the mula vidya, the root ignorance. All um, they, There's no ignorance other than ego. Ego is a false awareness of ourself. So we cannot be free of ego until ego is, I mean, ego, Bhagavan says in verse 24 of Uludhanapadu, but ego itself is samsara. Uh, that is, e there's no samsara without ego. Who is it who is experiencing samsara? It is only ego. So ultimately, samsara boils down to ego. So if you want to be free of samsara, you have to be free of ego. So the sole aim of Bhagavan's teachings is eradication of ego. Arunachala Mena, Bhagavan ends Uludhunapadu by saying eradic uh, annihilation of ego alone is liberation. He begins Akshram by saying, Arunachala, you root out the egos of those who think of you in the heart as I. So, uh, throughout Bhagavan's teachings, he's constantly emphasizing the need for eradication of ego. In verse um, Verse um, nine of Akshramla, he begins with "Ene Aritu," destroying me. That is the aim of of, of Akshramla. That is the aim of Uludhunapadu. 
he talks in Nuldinapoli about the destruction of oneself. Um, how to attain the destruction of oneself in which I does not rise, he says in verse 27, except by investigating oneself. So the sole aim of Bhagavan's teachings is eradication of ego. Eradication of ego is what is otherwise called self-surrender. So we cannot, we cannot, um, we, we, ego will not be eradicated until we are willing to surrender it. So eradication of ego and self-surrender are one and the same. That is what Bhagavan's teachings are all about. Any experience, whether you have experiences of, you may have all sorts of divine experiences, you may see uh, visions of God, you may have ecstatic states, or all sorts of things you can experience, but to whom are all those experiences? Any experience that is Visesha, anything other than the fundamental awareness I am, all other experiences are experienced only by ego. That's why Bhagavan says in verse um, uh, um, 20 um, uh, of Uludhanaptu, seeing uh, um, seeing God without uh, leaving oneself, or no, not seeing oneself, seeing God, seeing God instead of seeing without seeing oneself, is only seeing a manamaya mamkakshi, a mental a mental image, a mental vision. So uh, to see yourself as you actually are, you need to see, you need to turn your attention within, see yourself as you actually are. That alone is truly seeing God. And we can see ourselves as we actually are. The price to be paid for seeing ourselves as we actually are is annihilation of ego. So we cannot know God without surrendering ego, without giving up ego, without allowing him to swallow this ego. That's why in verse 21, he says, he he concludes by defining what is seeing, what is, meaning what is seeing God or what is seeing oneself. He says, Unadal Khan, becoming food is seeing. That is, we can see God only when he swallows us, because only when he swallows us will we remain as him, will we cease to be anything separate from him. And God is pure awareness, that our real nature is pure awareness. It can never, pure awareness cannot be an object of awareness. So we can know pure awareness only by being pure awareness. That's why he says in verse 26 of Upadeshundia, Tanai Iritle, Tanai Aridlam, being oneself alone is knowing oneself. What? Why? Because what we actually are is just pure awareness. How to know pure awareness? Only by being pure awareness. Nothing other than pure awareness can know pure awareness. So annihilation of ego is the sole aim of Bhagavan's teachings. And the only means to achieve that is turning within to see what we actually are. Because ego is a false awareness of ourself. Without seeing what we actually are, we cannot destroy ego. You cannot kill the illusory snake without seeing that it's a rope. You can beat it as much as you like, but you won't kill it until you look at it carefully and see, oh, it's not a snake, it's just a rope. Then only is the snake annihilated. Likewise, we need to look at ourselves to see what we actually are. When we see what we actually are, we will know this ego is, is wholly unreal. We have never risen as ego. Thank you, Michael. Um, the same questioner 
um, in response is saying, so this must also mean that both Manonasa and Ahavinasa are one and the same. Thank you so much. Manonasa and Ahandenasa. Ahavinasa. Ahavinasa. Yeah, Ahavinasa means, it's, it's another way of saying uh, annihilation of ego. Annihilation of ego, annihilation of mind are one and the same because what the mind essentially is, is only ego. That is, though the term mind is often used as a collective term to refer to the totality of all thoughts, all other thoughts appear in whose view? Only in the view of ego. So no thought can exist without ego, the first thought I. That's what Bhagavan teaches us in verse 18 of Upadesha Undia. Enangale um, manam. Uh, Thoughts alone are mind. Yavinum nanenum enname mulamam. Of all, meaning of all the thoughts, the thought called I alone is the root. Yanam manamenal. What is called the mind is only I, meaning it's only ego. So what the mind essentially is, is only ego. Thank you, Michael. Um, Bruce makes a comment, in my experience, though I don't speak Tamil, I'm finding the cross-referencing of original translated texts has, helpful, has helped dispel my ego's imaginative linguistic interpretations. Yes, that is... Of course, if we, if we know Tamil, it is an added bonus because we can read... Uh, we, we can enjoy the way Bhagavan has expressed it. And no, nothing to translate from one language to another is you they can it's always less than satisfactory but um we we it is possible to translate because Bhagavan texts are Bhagavan's verses are essentially very simple we can translate them very clearly in English if we translate carefully and if we understand what the, the meaning is so um even if you don't know Tamil, it doesn't matter. So long as you have access to reliable translations of his teachings, that is sufficient. And cross all these cross-references, it is just a, what I'm pointing out is that Bhagavan, whatever question we may ask, Bhagavan has answered it somewhere. He may not have answered it directly, but we can understand the answer if we understand his original writings, if we understand his original writings and the connections between them, any question that may arise, how am I able to answer all the questions that people ask me? It is so easy because by Bhagavan's grace, I've, I've had the good fortune of studying these texts and I also have a good fortune of studying them under the guidance of Sadhu Om. So I, I'm able to understand the, the correct meaning of the verses and the answers to all questions are here in Bhagavan's, are here in Bhagavan's own verses. Uh, it may not be explicitly there, but we can infer what is the correct answer to any question from his verses. So all these cross-references are very, very important because only if we see the connection between what Bhagavan says here, what he says there, can we get a coherent understanding of his teachings? Otherwise, if we take teachings out of the context of his teachings as a whole, we are liable to misinterpret them. 
If we want to avoid misinterpretation, we need to be able to see all the connections. And how can we gain a deep understanding of Bhagavan's teachings? Of course, we need to study them. That is Sravana. We also need to think deeply about them, to see the connections. But what is most important of all is putting them into practice, because when we put it into practice, we are, we are turning our mind within towards the original light, but a light that illumines the mind. That is the light of uh, pure awareness, I am. The more we look within, the more we are, so to speak, bathing in clarity. So when when we the more we deeper we go in the practice, the clearer Bhagavan's words will become to us. The clearer the connections between what he says here and what he said there will become to us. So that is why sravana, manana, nidityasana are all necessary. So obviously, if we've never read these things, if we've never come across these things, we we, we can't even begin on this path. So we need to have. Uh, have uh, I've read these things, we, but merely reading Bhagavan's teachings, like this, this verse we read today, if you read that and you don't know anything else about Bhagavan's teachings, it doesn't mean a lot. But if, you under, if you've read Bhagavan's teachings as a whole, you see so many, this verse is connected to so many other things Bhagavan has said, we get so much more meaning out of it. But in order to see those connections, we need to have a certain degree of clarity. That clarity comes from the practice. So the, the, the sravana it feeds into the manana. The manana is essential in order to practice it. If we don't if we don't understand what Bhagavan has said, then how can we practice self-investigation? If we haven't, if we don't have, if we don't understand why Bhagavan is saying we should investigate ourselves and what he means by saying we should investigate ourselves, am I this body? If I'm this body, then investigating myself, I can, I can take an anatomy lesson or a physiology lesson. No, that's not investigating myself. Am I this mind? Perhaps if I go and study psychology, then that is self-investigation. No, this mind is not ourself. We need to understand that we are not body or mind or anything, anything that is seen, anything that we are aware of is something other than ourselves. It's all uh, drissia. We, in order, what we need to investigate is drik, the, the, the seer, the sakshi, the witness. We, so we need to turn our attention back to ourselves, the one to whom all these things appear, the one who is aware of all these things. So we need that understanding in order to put it into practice. So sravana, manana, niti, kiyasana, all are essential. But more important than sravana, or, or more efficacious than, we, we can get more, more out of manana than we can out of mere sravana. That is, we can't do the manana without the sravana as a base, but we, but we will get much more from our sravana if we do manana. And we will get much more from the manana if we put it into practice. When we put it into practice and then we come back to read the verses again, they're more meaningful. We see more connections. We see, oh, that, this is the connection between what Bhagavan says here and what he says there. So everything becomes clearer and clearer. But the most important of all, is putting it into practice, turning our attention within. But in order to turn our attention within, we need to understand his teachings. Many people ask, how do I do self-investigation? 
the only way to understand how to do self-investigation is to read Bhagavan's works carefully, think about it. Then only we will understand what he's pointing at. That what exactly is self-investigation? We can, we can express it in words. We can say it's being self-attentive. But what exactly does it mean to be self-attentive? We can, we can understand that only by having a clear understanding of his teachings, and most important of all, um, uh, trying to put it into practice. The more we put it into practice, the clearer the way will become. I, I hope that was a useful answer to that. Yeah, yes. Thank you, Michael. Um, and um, so then Bruce also makes the comment, so I must eat myself. This is a traditional formulation. Yes, or you must be eaten. Because <laughs> the one... Yes, there is only one self. But our self as we actually are needs to swallow ourselves as we seem to be. So in that sense, yes, we are eating ourselves. But it's not, e ego cannot eat itself. Ego can only surrender itself to be eaten by what we actually are. But ultimately, yes, it is we ourselves are swallowing ourselves. Thank you, Michael. Um, and then there is um, uh, Rabbi quotes from... Uh, Talks with Ramana Maharshi. Um, I don't have the book right now with me, um, but he is says, there any uh, reference there? Um, yeah, um, it's in 18th, he says 18th January 1939. Yes, what is the question um, so about the that? Question, the, the question is um, the court of Bhagwan says that effort to still a single thought for tries goes a long way to reach a state of quiescence. Does the practice of getting rid of thoughts contribute to Manonasa? I don't think talks is always a very clear uh, recording of what Bhagavan said. Um, hear what is said here. Stillness is the aim of the seeker. Even a single effort to still at least a single thought, even for a uh, thrice uh, uh, goes a long way to reach the state of quiescence. Bhagavan's path is not about stilling thoughts. It's not about aiming for stillness. St if stillness is something that comes and goes, it is something other than ourselves. What I was uh, this morning, I was answering someone else's question, and it was a very it, it wasn't about this, but it was a similar thing. But we have to, they were asking, do we have to aim for stillness? I, I said, no. What we need to do is to hold on to our being, hold on to I am. If we hold on to I am, the mind will automatically uh, subside and the resulting state is one of stillness. But if we take stillness as our aim, stillness is something other than ourselves. So we're looking for stillness. We're looking for something. Uh, the stillness hasn't come yet. When is that stillness going to come? We're taking. We're looking for something other than ourselves. Don't worry about stillness. Let the mind be in a state of stillness or agitation. It doesn't matter. What matters is that we hold on to our being. If we hold on to our being, whatever agitation is there in the mind will automatically subside and stillness will remain. Likewise, Bhagavan never said that we should try and still thoughts. 
Bhagavan said, attend to yourself. In yoga, the aim of yoga is yoga's chitta vritti nirodha. Yoga is curbing or quelling or destroying the mental activity. We can take chitta vritti to mean mental activity. Bhagavan said that is not practical. What is practical is apmambeshana, self-investigation. Because if we turn our attention towards ourselves, the thoughts will automatically um, be uh, curbed because we're not attending to them. But if we merely try to control the thoughts, if we merely try to stop the thoughts, we'll end up in layer. So um, sometimes what is recorded in talks doesn't um, adequately represent the true view of Bhagavan. So the recorder understood something. He put it in his words. Bhagavan would have spoken in Tamil. He understood something. And later he came and he wrote it down according to his understanding. So this is what we are reading here is not the actual words of Bhagavan. It's the understanding of the person who had heard Bhagavan's words and tried to express in his own words in a different language because Bhagavan spoke in Tamil. He's recorded in English. In English. So it doesn't, it talks in many places, does not, it misrepresents Bhagavan in many places. I am inter interrupting the recording here to add one uh, further comment, which I meant to make during the meeting when discussing this passage in section 609 of uh, talks. That is, what is recorded is even a single effort to still at least a single thought, even for a trice, goes a long way to reach the state of quiescence. There is actually a good point being made here. It's just it hasn't been well recorded. Bhagavan wasn't concerned just about stilling thoughts. He was concerned about holding on to self-attentiveness. So if we reword this sentence in the way that Bhagavan is more likely to have expressed it, we can say, effort to be self-attentive, even for a trice, or that means even for a moment, goes a long way to reach our natural state of just being. That is the point being made here, is that every small effort we make to be self-attentive, every moment of self-attentiveness is a step in the right direction. Because of the nature of our vishaya, of our mind, it is um, generally under the sway of Vishaya Vasanas, when we try to hold on to self-attentiveness, we very, as a general rule, we very uh, easily uh, succumb to the sway of our Vishaya Vasanas and allow our attention to be diverted away from ourselves towards other things. But every moment that we hold on to self-attentiveness is is we are moving in the right direction. So we shouldn't, just because we we struggle to hold on to self-attentiveness for any length of time, need not, uh, need, not uh, need not perturb us. What is important is that we hold on to self-attentiveness as much as possible. Because every moment of self-attentiveness, we are making significant progress towards our goal. More than any other effort we may make, the effort to be self-attentive is the most valuable effort because it's the only effort we can make to move in the right direction, to, to move towards the 
annihilation of ego. That is, our aim is not manolaya, the temporary uh, dissolution of ego. Our aim is manonasa, the permanent destruction of ego. That permanent destruction can be brought about only by self-attentiveness. At every moment of self-attentiveness, we are weakening our Vishaya Vasanas and strengthening the Sat Vasana. So we we should understand but we, we, we shouldn't underrate the value of, of even a single moment of self-attentiveness. If we recognize the full value of every moment of self-attentiveness, that will encourage us to try more and more. It, no matter how many times our attention slips away again towards other things, it doesn't matter. So long as we repeatedly and persistently try to be self-attentive, that is what matters. So that is the point Bhagavan is making here. Even a small moment of holding on to self-attentiveness, it will take us a long way. That is, what is recorded in talks is even a single effort, even a single effort, there's still at least a single thought. How can we still a sing, still thought? The means to still thought, the effective means to still thought. Uh, talk, uh, recommended by Bhagavan is to hold on to self-attentiveness. We are, if we are just merely trying to, as I go on to explain f further on in the meeting, if we try to merely try to uh, still the thoughts or to curb the thoughts or to stop the mental activity, it leads to manolaya. Our aim is not to uh, merely uh, still thoughts. Our aim is to know who am I. So we need to hold on to self-attentiveness. We need to look deep within ourselves to see who am I. That is the aim of our practice. That is what we need to be, um, we, that is what we need to uh, be, um, that, that should be our aim, holding on to self-attentiveness. If we hold on to self-attentiveness, automatically the thoughts are still, because our attention is not on them. Thoughts cannot rise unless we attend to them. But if we are thinking about how to still the thoughts, our attention are on the thoughts. Forget about the thoughts. As Bhagavan says, what does it matter however many thoughts rise? Our aim should be to hold on to self-attentiveness. If we hold on to self-attentiveness, we are thereby stealing thoughts. Even if it's just a moment of self-attentiveness, that goes a long way. So we should be persistently trying with the understanding that every moment of self-attentiveness is taking us a long way towards our eventual goal of, uh, of seeing what we actually are and thereby dissolving forever in our source. Our, our source, which is the state of quiescence, the natural state of quiescence, our natural state of just being as we actually are, that alone is the state of quiescence or stillness. Right. And that's one of the reasons why we don't discuss uh, secondary recorded works. I mean, it, it's, I it's, mean, it's okay to discuss it if we do so with discrimination. If we understand right. what Bhagavan's teachings are, then we can understand that these, these, what is recorded here is falling short of what Bhagavan actually taught us. The, the same in talks in some place. So while Michael is pulling it, no, so we, when we do quote from the secondary works, we, we make sure it is, it is in sync with Bhagavan's original works. Okay, he, here in... in in this, um, in section 485, 
of talks, uh, Bhagavan said, again, uh, people ask how the mind is controlled. I say to them, show me the mind and then you will know what to do. The fact is, the mind is only a bundle of thoughts. How can you extinguish um, it by the thought of doing so or by a desire? Your thoughts and desires are part and parcel of the mind. The mind is simply fattened by the new thoughts rising up. Therefore, it is foolish to attempt to kill the mind by means of the mind. The only way of doing it is to find its source and hold on to it. What is the, that's what is recorded there. I will give my comment here. What is the source of the mind? The mind, the source is I am. The mind is the, is the mixed awareness. I am this body. I am such and such a person. So the source that we have to hold on to is that fundamental awareness I am. So he said, the only way to do it is to find its source and hold on to it. The mind will then fade away of its own accord. Yoga says, chitta vritti nirodaha, control of the activities of the mind. But I say, atma vichara, self-investigation. This is the practical way. Chitta vritti nirodaha is brought about in sleep, swoon, or by starvation. As soon as the cause is withdrawn, there is um, recrescence of thoughts. That's not a word I'm familiar with. Um, I, that means there's a return of thoughts, I think. Of what use is it then? In the state of stupor, there is peace and no misery. But, but misery recurs when the stupor is removed. Stupor, I think he means here, layer. So Nirodha control is useless and cannot be of lasting benefit. So here, this is represents Bhagavan's views better than the portion you referred to, because here Bhagavan is saying controlling thoughts is futile. Ignore thoughts. In, in, in Nana, in the sixth paragraph of Nana, Bhagavan says, However many thoughts rise, so what? What we need to do when thoughts rise, we need to turn our attention back towards ourselves, the one to whom the thought appears. So he said, as and when each thought arises, um, we we need to uh, we need to vigilantly investigate to whom. Investigating to whom means turning our attention back to ourselves, the one to whom the thought has appeared. Then the thought will automatically subside. That's what Bhagavan explains in Nana. That's what he's implying here. But he's, that's why he says Atma Vichara is the practical way. That implies that yoga is not practical. Uh, because we can't, if you control the mind, you end up only in, if you, if you successfully control the mind, if you successfully curb the chitta vrittis, you'll end up in layer. As Bhagavan said, we, 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 we achieve chitta vritti nirodaha every day when we fall asleep. But what use is that? We come back again the next day. So the only practical way is to hold on to the source of the mind. What is the source of the mind? The fundamental awareness I am. That is what we need to hold on to. So don't worry about thoughts. Don't worry about controlling thoughts. Only, our only concern should be to hold on to I am. Don't even worry about stillness. 
let the mind be in a state of turmoil or in a state of stillness, it's no concern of ours. The mind is something other than ourselves. Who am I? We hold on to that I, that fundamental awareness of our own existence, but any agitation that may be there in the mind will automatically subside. So we, the stillness will come automatically without our even noticing it because our sole attention is on ourself. Thank you, Michael. Um, so that answers the question and also differentiates yoga from Bhagwan Satmachara. That's very, very, that same thing that is recorded here in this passage I read, that's also recorded by Lakshman Sharma in, um, in Maha Yoga. It, much of it is much the same, but it's, uh, it, it's, useful to read both together because neither is an exact recording of what Bhagavan uh, would have said, but uh, together they give a very, very clear picture of what is Bhagavan's attitude towards yoga. And this is very, very important to understand because so many people say, I, I was meditating for 20 minutes, I didn't have any thoughts, so what? I slept for um, five hours last night. I didn't have any thoughts. <laughs> Is there any benefit in that? No benefit at all. Stopping thoughts is not our aim. Our aim is knowing who am I. If you know who am I, the thoughts will automatically stop because you're not attending to them. But thoughts cannot, cannot, there cannot be thoughts unless we attend to them. If you want to control the thoughts, you have to attend to them to try and control them. Don't attend to them. Attend only to yourself, and the thoughts will take care of themselves. Right. Um, thank you, Michael. This is such an important thing, because if we don't understand this, we haven't really understood what Bhagavan, what is... What what Bhagavan's what is the practice that Bhagavan has taught us? If we don't recognize the distinction between this and yoga, which is trying to control the chitta vrittis, we haven't correctly understood Bhagavan. Yeah, this is one of the most important points. I'm glad he asked yeah. the question. And um, but many of the people who recorded what Bhagavan said, they didn't understand this. So they mix, they had so many ideas in their mind, they mix it together. So what we get in talks, there are some ideas in talks which are correct what Bhagavan would have said, but so many other ideas, according to the understanding of the recorder, are mixed in there. Yeah, thank you, Michael. So I also learned something today, <laughs> which is, so I asked, um, I chat, you know, on the chat box, I asked Ravi, where did he get this from? Because I was taken aback when he put mm. that thing in there. And he said, that was in the calendar that you gave me. So, so then I put a note to myself. I have to make sure <laughs> I don't distribute the calendars <laughs> without really checking the contents. You know, I just went and picked it up from Ramana. Yeah, the calendars it. will have nice pictures of Bhagavan. Right. Just, just give a warning. Not everything that is printed as Bhagavan's words is actually Bhagavan's words. Right. Um, so there's this question from Shohan here. Um, there seems to be gra graduations or levels in self-awareness. Is it to the level or extent of our separation from ego or to the actual depth of self-awareness? There are different degrees of clarity. 
That is, as we go deeper and deeper in this path, the clarity of self-awareness increases. That is, we are always clearly aware I am. But so long as we rise as ego, we're clearly aware I am, but we are aware of ourselves not just as I am. We're aware of ourselves as I am Shohan, I am Kumar, I am Michael, I am whoever. So that is why we are not we are clearly aware that we are. We are not clearly aware what we are. What we are will become clearer the more we look within. The more we look within, the more we still identify ourselves with this body, but the more we are able to recognize, the more we begin to discern that we are actually something distinct from this body. So in that sense, we get deep, we are the clarity of awareness of ourself as something distinct from this body becomes uh, it, it, the, the clarity increases. So there are degrees of clarity. When that clarity becomes full, ego is annihilated. The, the perfect clarity of pure awareness, what Bhagavan calls I am I, uh, the clear recognition of ourself as ourself alone, as nothing other than ourself, that is what will annihilate ego. So there are gradations in the clarity. In the clarity, the yes, yes. And is this what Swami Sadhuvam refers to in terms of degrees, you know, like uh, you turn 90 degrees, 170? Yes, yes, you yes. Know, yes. When, when we, we, in that analogy, um, we, we don't literally turn, but metaphorically we can say we turn. So to the extent we turn, we turn our attention towards ourselves, we are withdrawing it from other things. So the closer we come to a 180 degree turn, the, the, the more our awareness of other things will recede into the background. When we turn the full 180 degrees, we're attending only to ourselves, and we're not at all aware of anything else. When we're not at all aware of anything else, then we are aware of ourselves as pure awareness. Being aware of ourselves as pure awareness will destroy ego. Because ego is an impure awareness. Ego is the adjunct mixed awareness. I am this body. So only when we experience ourselves as pure awareness, as I am alone, I am nothing other than I, only then will um, will ego be annihilated. So we are aware of ourselves as pure awareness only when our attention is withdrawn entirely from all other things. Right. If, if I turn this far, if I just turn 90 degrees, I can still see you out of the corner of my eye. The more I turn round, the less I'm able to see the, the things that were previously in front of me. Right. Um, as but we shouldn't be, when we're trying to turn, we shouldn't be trying to see, am I still seeing other things? Am I still aware of other things? Because then our attention is going towards those other things. We should forget about other things. Right. Let there be thoughts or let there not be thoughts. It doesn't matter. However many thoughts appear, it doesn't matter. Our aim is to turn our attention back towards ourselves. So our only interest, our only concern should be knowing who am I, not knowing whether thoughts are there, not knowing whether we are uh, curbing thoughts or whatever was said in that portion of, of talks. That is not the point. The point is seeing who am I. 
Thank you, Michael. Um, so, and then Vidya asks, when our true nature is described as achala, that is unmoving, is that mm. not stillness? Yes. But that, that, how do we achieve that stillness? Only by whole, our real nature, being is always still. The movement is a doing, not a being. If we hold on to our being, we will automatically become still. We will automatically become achala. Because the, the activity was, if we're holding on to our being, the activity will subside. But if we are seeking stillness, if we are seeking a state of motionlessness, we, we are taking that to be something other than ourselves. That's why I say, don't worry about stillness. Hold on to your being. If you hold on to your being, you will automatically discover the state of stillness. You will discover that stillness which does not come and go. If you're looking for some stillness, as some a new experience, now my mind is moving. Where can I find that stillness? If we are looking for it as something other than ourselves, we will never achieve it. Or if we achieve it, it will be just a state of layer. To achieve it in such a way that we never uh, leave that stillness, we need to find it within ourselves as our own real nature. We can find it within ourselves only by holding on to our being. The more we hold on to our being, the more we are being as we actually are. Because our being is never aware of anything other than our being. And that's that's the one that, that most of the devotees who, who come to the center, you know, that they struggle with, you know, they have been just sort of primed into thinking this yoga concept, right? Um, that stillness has to be achieved and so forth. It, 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 it is, an, you will find it there in all the books. You will find it, people who give lectures on Advaita, they will say, they, they, they praise the yoga as if it's a, um, the, the practices of yoga are a great help in this. Bhagavan has said, if you do yoga practice, if you control the breath, sooner or later, you have to turn your attention back towards yourself. Otherwise, you will end up in Manolaya. That's the implication of what Bhagavan says in, in verses 13 and 14 of Upadeshundiya. In verse 13, he says that dissolution of mind is of two kinds, Laya and Nasa. That which is in Laya will rise again. If its form dies in Nasa, it will not rise again. Then in the next verse, he says, only when the mind, which, uh, which, is, which subsides by controlling the breath, only if that mind is sent on the Orvari, that means the investigating path, implied the path of self-investigation, will its form die? So if, if, if people wanted to practice pranayama or wanted to practice yoga, Bhagavan would say, okay, if you practice that, but don't allow yourself to go into layer. If you achieve a certain degree of stillness, of, of, of quietness or stillness of mind, make use of that stillness by turning your attention back to yourself. If you don't turn your attention back to yourself, you'll end up in layer. So before going to that layer, yes, to yes, so that's but, the key. But we don't need yoga. Yoga may be a good means of of calming down the mind. 
But we don't need to calm down the mind because whether the mind is agitated or calm, we are always aware I am. So if our sole aim is to hold on to I am, but the calmness will come automatically by our holding on to I am. We don't have to put the cart before the horse. First, I must make the mind calm. And then only I can hold on to I am. That is putting the cart before the horse. Hold on. The most effective way to calm down the mind, more effective than pranayama or any amount of yoga practices, hold on to your being. You will remain as being. That is the this is the direct path. That is a roundabout path. So in that analogy, the cart is um, thought-free state and the horse is, is focusing on awareness. Yes, yes. But you can, you, you even to say cart before the horse is not very adequate because even if you put the cart before the horse, the horse isn't going to follow the cart in this case because you can make the mind still by yoga, but you don't thereby achieve self-attentiveness. Whereas if you hold on to self-attentiveness, you will achieve the, 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 the stillness automatically. Right. So self-attentiveness will result in stillness. Stillness will not result in self-attentiveness. So but what, needs to go, <laughs> what we need to focus on is self-attentiveness, holding on to our own being, I am. Right. That is the practice that Bhagavan has taught us. That is why I was saying earlier, this is why manana is so important, that sravana and manana, we need to carefully read what Bhagavan has said, we need to think deeply about it. Why did Bhagavan say, everyone says we have to control thoughts, but Bhagavan says, what does it, however many thoughts rise, so what? Why, why is this? Why is Bhagavan saying something opposite to everyone else? There must be a reason for it. We need to think about these things. We need to understand. Otherwise, we can. How many people have read Nana? How many times? How many people notice that sentence? But that is actually such an important sentence because that that shows what is Bhagavan's attitude towards thoughts. Bhagavan is not bothered about thoughts. He doesn't want us to be bothered about thoughts. However many thoughts rise, so what? What we should do. Whether thoughts rise or not, if thoughts rise, to whom do they arise? Even if they don't rise, we are still there. So hold on to ourselves. So we need not. That's why he ends Arunachashtakam verse 6. Nindrida sendrida ninevida vindre. Let them, let them go on or let them stop. They are not other than you. Other than you, there. He's referring to Aranachala. What is that Aranachala he's referring to? In the very first sentence of that verse, he says, Undoru porul arivoli ulameini. There is only one thing, you, there are only one substance, you, the, the, uh, the heart, the light of awareness. So when he says in the last sentence that they're not other than you, they are not other than that light of awareness. Thoughts couldn't appear or disappear without the light of awareness. Forget about the thoughts. Hold on to the light of awareness. It is always shining in our heart as I am. That is what... So it, it, Bhagavan has made things clear to us, but we need to read what he's saying very carefully. We need to understand what is the significance of what he's saying. Right. Thank you, Michael.
um, and then there is a comment here. We cannot think our way to realize reality. So we really cannot find an answer to who am I in the manner we are used to. Reality will reveal itself. So sitting in silence and doing nothing. Um, personally, Bhagavan never, asked, never said, ask who am I? In many English books, it's recorded as, he's, as if he said, ask who am I? Bhagavan didn't say, ask who am I? Bhagavan said, investigate who am I? If you're asking a question, you expect an answer. If you're investigating something, you yourself have to find the answer. What is the answer? You yourself are the answer. Knowing yourself, being yourself, that is the answer to the question, who am I? So you're not going to get a verbalized answer because it's not a verbalized question we're asking. We are investigating to see who am I, to see what we actually are. Um, there was a little bit at the end there, something I didn't quite catch it, but I thought that was significant. Can you read the last bit of that question again? Yeah. Um, so I'll just read from the beginning. Um, we cannot think our way to realize reality, so we really cannot find an answer to who am I in the manner we are used to. Yeah, that's true. Reality will reveal itself. So sitting in silence and doing nothing. Reality will reveal itself, but we need to look at it. Where is reality? Tane, tane, tatvam. As Bhagavan says in verse 43 of Uludunaptu, oneself alone, oneself alone is the reality. So if you want the reality to reveal itself, you have to look at it. That's in verse 43, Bhagavan prays. Tane, tane, tatvam. Oneself alone, oneself alone is the reality. Idane, uh, this, tane kartvayaranacha. May you yourself reveal this. That's what he says in 43. Then in 44, he gives what Aranacha's answer is. That is what, what Aranacha taught Bhagavan through silence. Bhagavan has translated into words for us in verse 44. Tirumbiaham, turning within. Tane dinamaha kankan, see yourself daily. That means constantly with the inner eye. That means the eye of attention, the, the inward looking attention. Terium, uh, it will be known. So when will it reveal itself? If you want to see something, you need to look at it. You can't say, oh, show me it, show me it, but not look at it. You need to. Bhagavan is always showing to us what is the reality. It's there. He's shining in the heart as I am, as, our, as, the, as the, the only reality. He's there. But unless we look within, how are we ever going to see him? We can't say, oh, Bhagavan will reveal himself one day, but we continue turning our back on him. How can he reveal himself to us when we're turning our back on him? We need yeah, to turn yeah, back but... within to see him. Then only he will reveal himself. So merely keeping still is not the answer. Because keeping still is chitabriti nirodaha. It's, it's curbing the mental activity. It, it will yeah. end up in manolaya. Doesn't matter whether you're still or not. Hold on to your being. Your being is ever still. Hold on to that stillness. But the stillness that you actually are, your own being. So we have to make that active effort 
to, to we have to make effort of course because the very nature of the mind is to go outwards the mind will always be going outwards unless we make effort to turn it back within because its very nature is to go outwards thank you michael and then uh, there is a question from sandy vipushan and um and this question has been asked to me a, a few times before can you please elaborate fundamental awareness i am you know sometimes we just say it but then you know i have been asked this question too you know in the past okay. You know, okay okay stop it right there just explain what is fundamental awareness what do you keep saying okay we are now aware of many things we're aware of this world around us we're aware of ourselves as a body but so many things we're aware of now but whatever awareness of things other than ourselves con is constantly coming and going now i'm aware of a pc screen in front of myself if i close my eyes i'm no longer aware i no longer visually aware of it so awareness of other things is constantly changing a constant i think they call stream of consciousness there's there's a constant stream of consciousness this is the the um in buddhism the um what they call chittamatra the, the the consciousness only the um I've gotten uh, anyway there, there's a school of um of of uh, buddhism that is very much into this but consciousness is constantly appearing and disappearing there's a constant stream of 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 that is what is appearing and disappearing is awareness of things other than ourselves but behind all that what is appearing and disappearing there is one thing that is constant but one thing that is constant is the fundamental awareness of our own being i am that is the fundamental awareness because other awareness of other things is constantly changing constantly coming and going in waking and dream we're aware of other things and during waking and dream both what we're the other things we're aware of are constantly changing our awareness of other things is constantly changing in sleep we are not aware of anything else but the one thing that we're aware of in all three states without a break without any change is i am so that is the fundamental awareness other things appear and disappear what 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 alone remains always that alone is fundamental that is the foundation on which everything else is built if we were not aware i am we couldn't be aware of ourselves as i am sandy or i am michael or i am kumar so without that awareness i am we couldn't be aware of ourselves as this person without being aware of ourselves as this person we wouldn't be aware of anything else as bhagavan says only when we are aware of if one self is a form the world and god will be likewise if one self is not a form who can see their forms and how so we're aware of things other than ourselves only when we're aware of ourselves as i am this body so uh this and this awareness i am this body comes and goes it appears in waking a dream it disappears in sleep so that is not fundamental it the awareness i am this body is more fundamental than anything else than any other awareness of anything else because whenever we're aware of it, other things we're aware of ourselves as i am this body but it's it's not what is ultimately fundamental what is ultimately fundamental is only the 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 fundamental means basic the, the, the ground the, the, the adhisthana the adhara that is the fundamental awareness i am 
Whether we are aware of other things or not, we are always aware I am. So the awareness of other things, um, so to speak, it, 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 the, the awareness I am is like the screen. The awareness of other things is like the pictures projected on the screen. Whether pictures are projected or not, the screen is always there. So the screen is fundamental. Without the screen, you can't have the pictures. And even in the absence of the picture, the screen is still there. So that is what is meant by the fundamental awareness I am. Uh, Sandy, is that an adequate answer? Does that make it clear enough? Is, uh, yeah, it's polished to muted. I think so, Michael. Okay, right. Um, so um, there's a question from Ram. When after so much of practice, I still feel restless and anxious, then I feel disappointed. How do we deal with this disappointment? Whether you whether you are restless and anxious, whether you're disappointed or whatever state of mind you may be in, could you experience any state of mind if you didn't exist? So don't worry about the states of mind. But the nature of the mind, the mind is fickle. It, it keeps on, we will feel anxious, we will feel, we will feel all sorts of things. All these are states of mind. Whatever be the state of mind, the one thing we are always aware of is I am. Hold on to I am. Let the mind be in any state it likes. Let the mind take care of itself. It's not no concern of ours. What we are concerned about is our own being. Who am I? So we, we need to learn to uh, cultivate an udasina bhava, an attitude of indifference. Not only indifference towards the external world, indifference even towards the states of our own mind. We, we feel anxious, we feel disappointed, only because we're allowing our attention to go outwards, to attend to the mind. Don't attend to the mind, attend to I. That is, when I say don't attend to the mind, Bhagavan sometimes said you need to investigate the mind. We need to understand what he means. When he says investigate the mind, he means investigate the subject. Because the mind is both the subject, the knower, and all the things that are known. So don't attend to anything that is known. Attend only to the knower. Don't attend to the drissia. Attend only to the drick. Don't attend to what is witnessed, attend only to the witness. Is that a sufficiently clear answer? I think so, Michael. Thank you. Um, then I'm going to, this Bruce um, made a comment here. There is a big difference between taking from the offering and then giving it back and just giving ourselves. The first is seeing the snake, the second is the rope. Um, there is no second guessing in the second. Sorry, that's not very clear yeah, to me. It's not clear to me either. Bruce, do you want to make it clear? There, I think it's in the uh, the reading, um, Kumar, that uh, was uh, related to Robert Butler uh, and, um, and Murugunar's uh, Pradesam, Sri uh, Guru Ramana Pradesam. Um, there, there's that 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 uh, referencing of um, of 
the offering, you know, giving to the, taking from the idol uh, that is your, um, you know, your, that you're worshiping and, um, and then uh, giving it back. That's like, uh, I guess what I'm trying to say is that's like uh, second guessing yourself and, you know, testing the water of, uh, of your sincerity. Whereas I think that the, the second aspect is uh it's referring more it when when one gives of oneself one you know make makes that real surrender uh then i think that 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 is that's the pure offering and the one that is accepted okay if that makes sense yeah i i think that is a a, a reference to a story bhagavan used to tell there was a a poor wayfarer who um every day he would uh he would um he would he wanted before um having his food he would want to um do puja do worship and an idol of ganesha but he didn't have any idol of ganesha so he would always carry a small amount of of jaggery that's crude sugar and he would shape that into a form of a ganesha and he would offer, he would worship it, and then he would offer some of his food to it. One day he had nothing to offer, because all he had was, the, was that sugar. So he made the, 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 the idol, he worshipped it, but then when he came to the end of his worship, he found he had nothing to offer it. So he pinched off the toe of Ganesha and offered it as, a, as an offering. Bhagavan said, such is our surrender. We first, we, that is, we, we have, first we have to take from God in order to give back to God. Why should we take from God in the first place? So what Bhagavan is indicating there is the real surrender is not rising and then surrendering ourselves, not rising in the first place. That is the real surrender. So how can we refrain from rising? by holding on to our being. By holding on to our being, our rising will subside and being alone will remain. That is the true surrender. So we shouldn't, we shouldn't take anything from God. By rising as ego, we are taking what is God. We say, I am this body. This is mine. I, this is my shirt, this is my relatives, this is my possessions, this is my um, my social status, this is my wealth, my bank account, this is all that I've achieved in life. We are taking all these things as ours. None of them are ours. So we should, the, the true surrender is never to rise as ego. Okay, we've now risen as ego, stop rising as ego. We can stop rising as ego only by holding on to I am. I think that is the I think what Murugan is saying there, I don't know exact, exact words, but I assume it is an allusion to what Bhagavan taught us through that story. That's right, Michael. Um, so just to give the context. Uh, People often say, I have surrendered. If, if someone were to say to Bhagavan, I have surrendered, Bhagavan would say, who are you to surrender? <laughs> so, so Michael, are you saying giving a little bit of jaggery uh, from the God to God himself 
did you say that is surrender because we need to take from him to give it back to him is that what you're saying that is surrender that is that that wayfarer he is with with bhagwan is not ridiculing his devotion but devotion is there he really but in order to to give to the god he has to take from the god in order to give to him so bhagwan is saying that is what bhagwan is course bhagwan's path is a path of surrender but it's a very deep path of surrender so we we shouldn't um pe- people go around they want to constantly offer things to god they want to do things for god i want to i want to be of service to god i want to i want to solve this problem in the world that problem in the world i'm i'm my i want to dedicate my life to a service of god it, it's that type of attitude bhagwan is is commenting on there why should we rise as ego in order to serve god the best way to serve god is not to rise as ego at all so bhagwan bhagwan's teachings are always pressing us to go deeper and deeper so though he taught the path of surrender he's trying to get us to understand what is the implication of surrender in order to surrender ourselves to god we first need to separate ourselves from god don't separate yourself remain in your being without ri- stop rising that is the true surrender don't rise and then surrender yourself don't rise at all right it's beautiful thank you michael um so the, i think that the context that bruce was referring to was from sri guru ramana prasad um we recently released a short video sort of um uh, asked robert butler you know he translated the book right robert sri guru ramana prasad so i asked him to sort of uh, given a history of what this book is how it came about because there's so much confusion mm. um and um he made a nice summary of it and also you know put in a few of the verses there right. um, so, so sort of was an introduction to that that um, book you know that's yeah. what he's referring to okay um then now let's uh with, with regards to srikant um question i think you answered it and then he has a follow up question so but the process of looking won't it engage our mind the mind when you say engage you mean is the mind active attending to anything other than ourself is an activity of the mind attending to ourself is a subsidence of mind so it's engaging the mind in its own subsidence in its own cessation so it is quite it's engaging the mind in quite a different way to engaging the mind in external activities when we attend to anything else we are engaging in activity when we turn our attention back to ourselves the mind is engaged in subsiding in being as it actually is so that is not a doing that is a cessation of all doing um thank you michael and then with regards to the fundamental awareness which you explained um vidya comments then bhagwan compared the fundamental awareness as similar to the underlying constant note or shridhi yes yes that's another analogy but but the most common analogy bhagwan used was the was the cinema screen analogy but he also re- used this uh, this shruti note that is in certain types of music there's one constant note there's a there's a musical instrument 
but is uh, uh, played in, in certain contexts called a sruti box. That sruti box will be set on a certain note and some all the, the player of the sruti box just has to squeeze it and that constant note will be there. That is like the, all the other... Um, that, that is like the... the the, the string going through um, through a, a, um, a, a necklace. A necklace is so many beads, there's a string going through them, or a string connecting all the flowers of a garland. So it's something constant that's holding everything together. The, the one thing that holds everything together is that fundamental awareness I am. Thank you, Michael. Or even to say holds together, it is it is the it is the foundation, it is the ground, the adhara, the adhistana, the mula. Yeah. Um, so, uh, the, so last question for today. Um, this is focusing on the word enil that occurs as the link between four and five of Ulla Um So, um, and. Uh, um, the questioner is asking, Anand is asking, the last word in nil in verse 4, um, which I believe means if he's scrutinized, right? Um, so the last word in nil in verse 4 seems to relate to both verse 4 and as a connecting link to the verse 5. Is this correct? Um, we I know we don't want to give too much about the next it, verse. It, but it, it is... Um... Enil in this case means if one thinks or if one considers. Yeah. Um, I suppose we could uh, we could uh, take it with the previous sentence, but um, normally, if, at least if it was in prose, the conditional clause comes first. So. So the natural play way is to take it connected with the with the next um with the next um verse, but we could take it either way. I mean it wouldn't be wrong to take it. Um to um we, we would then have to do an anveum. We'd have to say enil um enil um um uh kan adutan antamila kan Arme, there's all, all that the other part of the of the link is Arme, which is just uh, saying is it's an intensified form of is, but it doesn't actually change the meaning in any way. Also, uh, Enil doesn't actually change the meaning. Whether you say the body is a form of five sheaves, or if considered the body is a form of five sheaves, it amounts to the same. So some of the some of the links between the verses do not have any um, great significance. Like Arme doesn't actually change the meaning in any way. It slightly intensifies it, that's all. Um, but there are some of the uh, links in the Kalivemba version are extremely uh, meaningful, very, very significant. Um, the, the the links were added afterwards in order to link together the verses together because of the prosody of Bemba, there was very little choice for Bhagavan. He uh, so he couldn't always add in something meaningful, or perhaps sometimes when he says something like Enil, if can if one considers, um, he, perhaps he didn't want to add in anything more meaningful. I mean, if one considers. Is not totally meaningless. 
it's it's indirectly it's telling us think carefully about this think carefully about this what is the body whenever we experience the body as i we never experience just the physical body as i nobody has ever experienced a dead body as i it's always a living body nobody has ever experienced a sleeping body as i it's always a body that seems to be awake so in a waking body mind intellect and will are functioning so think carefully about this it's it's indirectly what bhagavan is telling us as you say we could if we wanted connect it with the previous um uh one self is the uh, oh uh um uh kan adutan antimila kan um uh um if one considers what is the real i it is only one self the infinite i we can take it there also yes i mean we the, the significance of of that if one considers is just uh it's it's just a small flag we can say just think think about this carefully it is the implication it's not what it directly means it, what it directly means is if one considers it, 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 what what it implies is think carefully about this think why it is said so so yes it can apply to either yeah. thank you mike but normally we would take it as applying to the next one because that's the, the natural um in, in the natural prose order the, the conditional clause comes first Yeah. Right. Thank you very much. I am always an admirer of uh, Bhagavan's uh, usage of uh, Tamil in such a terse and crisp, very rich form. Oh yes, so, yes, yes. Uh, yeah. So this, uh, you know, extra added for uh, Kalivan, you know, the connecting word. Yes. Uh, I think has in it its own implication. In this yes. particular case, it's it's what we call in Tamil kulagam. is a two two words are connected yes like, yeah vinnuru nunnu nunnuru maybe yeah and then the, yeah it connects with the next one yes so uh, so that's so it's not uh, for the general audience just uh, my own i couldn't suppress that uh, yes yeah the, the desire to express bhagwan's uh, usage of uh, yeah tamil in this beautiful way yes okay uh, i i had never considered why bhagavan uh, i mean the significance of it one considers i more or less took it okay it's not it's not at any huge significance but now when i was answering you i thought yes actually it's in a way bhagavan is indicating to us here we need to consider these things very carefully in in fact we could say this in if one considers we could apply it to every sentence in uludu napdu <laughs> because we need to consider this what bhagavan is telling us here is something so deep and but it's not he's not telling bhagavan often used to say do not believe what you do not know if we think about the, what he is saying in uludu napdu he is just pointing out to us what we can how we should view our own experience that that is he's not asking us to believe anything new for example when he says if ego comes into existence everything comes into existence in verse 26 ahande undain anatam undahum ahande indrail indru anatam if ego doesn't exist everything doesn't exist what he's actually saying there is our experience 
it is it, he's just drawing our attention to what should be obvious to us. So um, what he says in Uludun Apadu, yes, every sentence of Uludun Apadu, we need to think carefully about it. Thank you. Yes. Thank you, Michael. It's it's a beautiful discourse. Thank you so much. Thank you. Oh, thank thanks you, to Bhagavan. If anything useful has been said today, it comes only from Bhagavan. Thank you, Bhagavan. <laughs> he is the source of all clarity. It, it, it did so so beautifully today through you. <laughs> yes, Bhagavan, you Bhagavan wrote the finest, most deepest. Tamil poetry using an old leaky pen. So Bhagavan is not concerned about the instrument. He wrote, he has a he has a uh, a partiality for the type of instrument that anyone else would discard is the instrument that Bhagavan will choose as his his chosen instrument. So it he chooses the most worthless to do the most worthy things. Clarity is Bhagavan. Bhagavan is the very embodiment of clarity. So wherever we see clarity, there is Bhagavan. That's exactly what I experience is clarity through. And every verse, every time I've been on, it's always been relevant to anything that's happening in my life. Yes. And it provides so much clarity to me that uh, it's, it's actually very comforting to my ego, obviously, enough to let let go and release and then eventually annihilate it. <laughs> because Bhagavan's teachings are all about our being. So whatever we may be doing, whatever may be happening, it's all connected with our being. Because without our being, nothing could be we, we <laughs> nothing could be. We couldn't be doing anything. We couldn't be aware of anything happening. So Bhagavan is, is always pointing us back to the, what is fundamental, what is at the very center of everything. What is at the center of all experience is the experiencer. And what is at the center of the experiencer is this fundamental awareness I am. That is our being. Yes. That alone yeah, is I... what is real. That is what Bhagavan is constantly pointing at. So if we understand Bhagavan's correctly, it's connected with everything. It, there's not anything in our life that is not connected with this. If we recognize this connection, whatever we may be experiencing, it should be reminding us to turn back within. An amazing experience. Just, right. just to be here and uh, be reminded. <laughs> so I'm very grateful to everybody here. Thank you, Bhagavan reminds us the most obvious thing, <laughs> I am. Yes. But that is the yeah. one thing that is most obvious, but we, we, because it's so obvious, we, we are constantly neglecting it. <laughs> Our own being. The day-to-day -day mundaneness, I guess you could say, takes us away from I am, right? And... So this is a really nice way to come uh, back to I am. Our, our mind's liking for the mundane takes us away from I am. We exactly. can't blame the mundane. The fault lies with ourselves because we've got, a, a, because we've got so much taste in attending to the mundane, we overlook what is ever-present. <laughs>